This episode contains subject matter and language some might find offensive or inappropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It might come as a surprise to most that up until 1940, just five years before the deadly conclusion of the Second World War, humane Jewish immigration out of Germany was not only known to the leaders of the Third Reich, but in some cases, supported by them. During the last years of fighting in World War I, a nonpartisan youth movement was founded in Palestine in 1917. Known as Hekelutz, or Pioneer in Hebrew, this organization helped give training to Jewish individuals who wished to immigrate and carry out their aliyah, the Hebrew word for ascent. For those of Jewish descent, completing their aliyah is their journey back to the homeland of Israel and is still a practice tradition today. Following their establishment in 1917, the Hekelutz opened their world office doors in 1921 in Vienna, moving later to Geneva. In order to fulfill the immigration to Palestine, Jews would need to complete a certain amount of time at a Zionist training center known as Aha Shiraz. By way of agricultural training and spiritual guidance and practice, as well as a space for communal camaraderie, Zionist Jews would spend anywhere from a few months to a whole year at Aha Shiraz in order to increase their chances of a travel visa issued by the British government. As can be imagined, Aha Shirad training centers began to multiply in 1933 with the takeover of the Nazi party and the souring of public sentiment towards Jews, thus leading to an influx of European Jews vying for a way out of their cities and towns. By 1936, there were over 80 Aha Shiraz in Germany and neighboring countries and by 1941, almost 40,000 Zionists had completed their aliyah. Just like those 40,000 that underwent training at Aha Shara to prepare them for their eventual aliyah, God Beck would follow suit and venture to the rural regions of Germany to a farm where he would train with fellow Zionist youth. However, a matter of coincidence, or rather fate, would prevent him from completing his aliyah to Israel, instead forcing God back to Berlin, where he was made to report to the Employment Office for Jews. It was then, in the late fall of 1940, that God began work at a carton factory located in the heart of Berlin. Although the narrow miss of his aliyah had depressed his spirit, God would soon play host to the brighter side of fate. It was here, at the Carton Factory, that God would encounter some of the most monumental figures of his life, individuals that helped cultivate not only his Jewish identity, but also his homosexuality. Through one of his fellow workers, named Erwin, 
God would find himself a part of a local Hekalutes organization and soon began immersing himself in the local Zionist youth activities, since all other semblances of Jewish assimilations or German-controlled groups had long since disbanded or disappeared. From the embrace of his aliyah to the disappointment of its incompleteness, the twists and turns of fate placed Godbeck into a Zionist embrace. And this time, that embrace would lead him to love and an imminent life underground. I'm Caleb Franklin, and this is Root and Branch, Gay Survival and the Holocaust. Episode 3, Inside and Underground, Part 2. Just as the Aha Shiraz were used to give practical and theoretical guidance to young Zionist Jews, the same could be said of Yitzhak Schwerzens. Described by God as a central brilliant figure in the Zionist youth movement, Yitzhak was the school director of the Berlin Aliyah School and also helped head many Zionist youth groups and functions within the city. Engaging with young Zionist Jews and aligning their goals to be set on their eventual Aliyah was amongst the top priorities of Yitzhak. He brought exposure to the Hebrew language, of which he was fluent as well as literature, music, philosophy, and art. Although God was precarious with him on a personal level, he greatly respected his intellect and fervor for the Zionist movement. Yitzhak would come to represent a pivotal part of Jewish resistance, and just as he had shared his learnings and teachings with his youth group, helping align their goals to his goals, he would do the same with his goals for resistance. Along with his introduction and inclusion to the local Zionist youth group, God's co-worker Erwin also brought him to a local group that focused primarily more on the cultural and artistic aspects of Jewish life, with a hard left-wing scope. It would be in this group, while playing Marquise Poza, in Schiller's Don Carlos, that God would gain something life-changing, but not long-lasting, his first big love. Though Manfred Lewin would become a permanent fixture in God's life, their initial meeting was not as bombastic as their love would become. God found his acting a bit lackluster and felt none of his individual features were all that beautiful. 
gave a soft, somewhat awkward expression. But it was in the subtleties and moments of excitement, like when discussing the ultimate goals of the Zionist youth, that Manfred sparked interest from Gat. The son of a barber and one of five children, Manfred was actually heterosexual, as God explains. It was more about joy and fun and sharing hugs and caresses than anything else. And though they shared all of these aspects of love, sometimes profusely and in excess, they both dealt with Manfred's feelings of shame and immorality about his new love. It took weeks and months of patient discussions and long, deep, heavy conversations until Manfred felt okay about his love for God, as well as felt okay about himself. Just as their love grew through the season of its first summer, the pressure and consistent persecution from the Nazi regime grew to new levels of severity. Word began to reach Berlin of what the Third Reich termed evacuations or migrations that had been happening in other parts of Germany and the conquered territories, which now fell under German control. Terms like migration were employed to quell the awareness and emotions of the general public, but in all actuality were sugar-coated covers for the grim reality of deportations. In September of 1941, the compulsory wearing of the yellow star came to Berlin, wherein Jews were not only made to wear the star for recognition, a blatant act of othering, they were also made to purchase the patches which had their prices gouged in order to bleed remaining Jewish families of any financial holdings they had. Later that same month, the Gestapo ordered the Jewish Community Center in Berlin be converted into a pre-deportation center, which would send its first group of Jewish deportees to the horrid conditions of the Lotz ghetto in Poland. Within these few months, it became obvious that the Nazi regime was initiating a blatant effort to destroy Jewish life. But they also began using bombings from Great Britain as a more covert means of possible annihilation of the Jews. With the increase in aggression from Germany against the country, Great Britain began storming the cities of Germany with massive bombings, thus initiating the conversion of many buildings in Berlin into bomb shelters. This new onslaught of shelters required air raid patrols that would check on the numerous vicinities and leave those on watch wide open for potential death by bombing or death by debris. More often than not, those chosen for the raid patrols were Jews. The Nazi noose was rapidly tightening around the Jews of Berlin, and with numbers just as rapidly increasing of deportees, inevitably God would begin to lose some of those he held most dear. The World Hekelut Center was originally intended to provide preparations and training for Zionist Jews 
to complete their aliyah to Israel. But seeing as though Great Britain had seized the issuing of travel visas, the organization and its members had adjusted and adapted their work to provide aid and raise funds for those that were affected by the ever-growing persecution of the Nazis. God describes this conversion as a complex network of contact people in the major cities and towns and ghettos, and later even in the concentration camps. These communications became crucial to the survival of any kind of Jewish assimilation. And along with being crucial, they were also highly illegal. These complex networks of Jewish communications would be the first semblances of a life underground in Berlin. And in August of 1942, they would transform into a full-fledged covert mission of secrecy and hiding. After receiving a letter from a confidant in Geneva that warned of the death camps to the east, the youth leader Yitzhak would be the first to undertake a life underground. Uncanny to a spy thriller, God describes the day Yitzhak transformed his Jewish identity into something else entirely. After giving up his apartment and leaving a few belongings, Yitzhak went into the Gruenwald forest. He went in wearing a yellow star. He came out wearing a pin of the German labor front. The test case for a life underground had been initiated, and soon many more would join Yitzhak, hiding out in safe houses, foiling the Nazi regime at any opportune moment. Unfortunately, however, just as many would fall prey to the growing deportations issued by the Third Reich, and God's growing love for Manfred would reach its flowering just to be ripped at the root. God had arrived a morning too late to find two of Manfred's brothers, the eldest and the youngest, in four empty walls. The oldest brother, Shlomo, explained that they had been out when the Gestapo came, but were ordered to report to their offices the next day to join their family and face their imminent deportation together as a complete unit. God's initial reaction was as one might expect, utter shock and devastation. Yet he had been waiting for this inevitable time and knew it would eventually snatch Manfred in some way. While in the throes of this emotional storm, what happened next can only be explained by God as a farewell to Manfred, a goodbye I never had a chance to say. The eldest brother of the Lewin family and God made love within those four empty walls. Grief is a complicated thing and pushes and pulls different individuals in different ways. Shlomo was the last physical representation of Manfred and God was the last representation of love and closeness that Shlomo would get to experience in a world outside of a death camp. 
This interaction would be the final send-off, as the two Lewin brothers woke early the next morning and made their way to the holding center, ready to join their family. However ready the two Lewin brothers were, God did not share their commitment of letting go. He became unrelenting and indignant, and rather than succumb to the grief he had felt, his emotions were channeled into resolve, and the logistics of planning a way for Manfred and perhaps even his family to escape and hide out until a safe time was established. That resolve came in the form of a disguise. Through connections of Manfred's, God obtained the uniform of a Hitler youth, four sizes too big, and set out to locate him in the holding camp of Berlin. God played his part well and was able to have an SS guard retrieve Manfred from inside the camp's bounds. While God beamed at him with triumph and security, Manfred stayed quiet. From his pocket, he pulled a 20-mark bill and placed it in Manfred's hands, urging him to escape to one of his uncle's hideouts in Berlin. But the resolve that God had displayed to pull him from inside the camp, Manfred's resolve came in the form of staying with his family. God, I can't go with you. My family needs me. If I abandon them now, could never be free. Without a kiss, a touch, or even a goodbye, Manfred turned and walked back to the black chasm of the holding camp. No smile, no sadness. The two would never speak again, as Manfred and his family would all be murdered within the hellscape of Auschwitz-Birkenau. In moments of Manfred's quiet departure, God pins in his memoir, in those seconds, watching him go, I grew up. It was a loss to that of a phantom limb, always feeling its presence even when sense and all forms of reality tell you otherwise. It was a loss God admits I never really got over. Years later, he would still be stunned, whereas he pins electrified by the mention of the name. However, where grief could have taken over and become his new normal, he instead chose to throw himself into work activities, and planning with his fellow Zionist youth. This grieving period of work and distraction was short-lived as the leaders of the Third Reich began planning for Hitler's 54th birthday. In February of 1943, the Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, had planned to present the Fuhrer with an exuberant and massive gift that would, in no small part, involve many of the Jews and Mischlings left in Berlin. God was given a summons to appear at the employment office for Jews, 
where he learned of Goebbels' plan to announce to Hitler that the city had finally reached its pinnacle moment. He would declare Berlin Judenrein, or purged of Jews. Thanks to deportations and mandatory registration of every Jew in the city, even though it was a false statement, Goebbels felt confident enough in his planned efforts to deport all the remaining Jews to go through with his announcement. In the days that followed, God and other Jews and Mischlings that voluntarily reported to the employment office were kept inside the former administrative building of the Jewish community, now a makeshift internment camp. Their fate was unknown to most, including the leaders of the Third Reich. What Goebbels had not expected was the Christian families of Berlin's Mischling population, gods included, to stand outside the walls of the internment camp, protesting and demanding that their loved ones be released. While ruthlessly committed to the cause of the final solution, neither Goebbels nor Hitler wanted to create a spectacle that would draw any more attention to their plans for the Jewish population, thus leading to an eventual release of those held within the internment camp. This show of solidarity by the Christian relatives of the withheld Jewish prisoners is a glowing example of how resistance can be exemplified even just by showing up for the ones you love and does not need to be an explosive blow to power. This contortion of fate to God's benefit, however inspiring it was, hit too close for comfort. Thus, God, along with his Zionist friends, some Michelings, and a few individuals categorized as illegals, formed a new pioneer group dubbed the Chugchalusi. Functioning as a combination of a Zionist youth group, an aid and rescue effort, and an underground network of communication, thanks to Yitzhak, the Chugchalusi resumed efforts that had been functioning singularly, but now as a conjoined push to support those still left within the bounds of Berlin, as well as help those that wanted to get out. Shortly after God's arrival home from the Goebbels factory operation, two boys appeared on his doorstep both of which would play a huge part in the act of the underground resistance. But one of them, a 16-year-old, would also play as a new confidant and love interest for God. The blonde-haired boy, Hind, along with his friend Poldy, had narrowly escaped the same factory operation as God and his father, and were in need of a place to stay. Though it was impossible for the pair to stay with the Beck family as a secret for long, God's close friend Iwo was able to find lodgings for them, and the pair joined the resistance efforts of the Chugchalusi. Chapter 2 
Heinz would later, at the suggestion of God and Yitzhak, start to go by his Hebrew middle name, Zui. He proved to be incredibly useful in resistance efforts, having intimate connections with a worker at the Reich printing office, who would double print food ration cards and sell them to members of the Chug Chalusi to use for those in need. His usefulness also appealed to God, but more so on a personal and intimate level. He would become one of God's closest confidants and lovers, remaining a steadfast friend for the rest of their lives. Though resistance efforts continued growing, they were simultaneously matched with the growing Nazi desire to snuff them out, brutally and finitely. As God had known and was rapidly becoming more aware, the risk of capture was ever-present, and the risk levels were rising with each passing day. In the concluding months of 1943, in the final two years of the war, friends, faces, acquaintances, and even his closest lovers would begin to fall prey to the malevolent might of the Nazi regime, and some would showcase their resistance all the way to the crematoriums. Even God himself would be forced to answer for his resistance, and it would take more than the fickle whims of fate to save him. Root and Branch is produced, written, and researched by me, Caleb Franklin. Music and sound design by Benjamin Dunn. And artistic direction by Lindsay Franklin. Stay tuned to hear how Root and Branch will use an ancient memory technique to help listeners commit survivor stories to their memory. The edges of the garden burn bright from both sides, but from different causes. The center is occupied by not one, but two bodies. The small boy has grown, if only an inch or two, and today he is not alone. Another boy towers over him with messy dark hair, contrasting the short stature and blonde locks of the other. They are in love. From one side, the brightness bellows across the foliage as a multicolored sun. Blossoms blooming and growth that glistens. This is movement. This is love. The other side is of a different, darker shade. Loops and leaping spindles of flame lick the air and gain ground quickly. This is malevolence, the undoing of beauty, of life. Just as with the garden, transformation is apparent 
at the clock tower. Sweeping and dim changes have taken over. The old Tower of Time now displays vignettes, tales of tremendous fiery spread. The two boys are equally as shocked. A protrusive yellow star now sewn crudely into their skin. More fire gives way to more fiery scenes. But there are friends among them, taps on shoulders, embraces to bestow. But is this show of camaraderie premature? Just then, one friend, taller than the others, slips into the ground. He becomes but a shadow now, the watcher from below. The field is full of lists, numbers, and names in the millions, all of different lengths. The small blonde boy enters the scene, visibly shaken, frantic, and fearful. There is no resolution other than to find the lost list he came searching for. Until at last, he clutches a list the length of seven names. From the clutches of his hand, the list takes to flesh. The dark-haired one from the garden is here now. But his eyes carry an immeasurable sadness, a mass of melancholy. The small blonde boy's hopes soon heaves to disbelief as all across the field the great flame takes to the list, the shortest to the longest. Soon there are ashen edges and charred rememberings. Crying and hiding, the blonde boy begins his trek across the memories he once had and those he will never have. And just as they had joined in the garden, the dark-haired one joins him in his walk of sadness. But he is more than a shadow. He's an additional part of a bigger whole. The two, now one, breathe a silent sigh of relief as they cross the blackened grass. The pond will hold some beauty, some relief, they think. As I round the corner to the pond, what I had expected to find is surprisingly opposite. A small, blonde boy is working, lifting more than his height and more than his weight of giant cartons, thrusting them into the abyss of the pond. He now wears the symbol of two yellow stars, sewn at the skin in interlocking patterns. There is resolve in his eyes, and just as the work comes to an end, thousands of yellow-starred people, faces cast dark and anonymous, surround him. But this is not a congregation of praise or a congenial cluster. They await the fires both witnessed in images and those of testimony. Flames lick at their edges, 
but most remain untouched. They are safe, for now. A small boy walks next to another, a new, obvious outlier, a risk taker. Their bright yellow stars begin fading into the shadows.